Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, December 31st, and this is the weekly market update. Uh, first of all, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. I'm actually recording this on Friday, 1230, as I'll be traveling tomorrow back up to Houston. Uh, but this will be obviously the last video of the year. Um, and... I didn't, I was thinking about doing like a, a yearly review, but what I'll probably do is just like the first, first couple of videos of next year, I'll probably uh, do a little bit of a review and then also, you know, start getting into more of my developing thesis around this multipolar world, because we're seeing a lot of things happen. One of the things I'll mention in a slide here, but it's something we really need to start focusing on going forward because things are events are accelerating, um, you know, what's happening in the global South and the global East. So uh, I don't think that they can be ignored. And I think they're going to have a significant impact on uh, investments in the financial world. But that, that's for next year. That's for videos coming up. So I need to do a little bit more research. But, you know, just for an example, you know, you, you probably have, you know, consider that, you know, Russia... Venezuela and Iran probably have 40% of the world's oil reserves, right? Uh, proved reserves. So uh, I think that, you know, if you're in the West, you probably have a negative view towards those three countries. But considering the fact that they have 40% of the world's uh, oil reserves, and if they are going to become BRIC members or members of the SCO or drift towards, you know, out of the, uh, unipolar uh u.s hegemon towards you know looking to join the global south and east that's something that needs to be discussed tracked and understood as to how it's going to you know affect global markets finances politics you know all these things so that's beyond the scope of this one video like i said that's going to that's a developing story that we really need to follow i think it's even more important than you know, what central banks do. So anyways, we'll get into that next year. Again, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. All right. So uh, we've been talking about the Basically, Band-Aid getting ripped off the by China as it relates to the zero uh, COVID policy. And what I wanted to show is I came upon this chart on Twitter, which I think is, uh, you know, explains a lot. This goes back, I mean, to 1986. But what you can see is something we've discussed before. The unrelenting constant growth in world oil demand which typically is around, like I said before, one to 2% a year, depending. Now, again, you have these little, you know, drops like in 2008 when you had the great financial crisis. But again, it just rebounds right after that because the world doesn't end, right? The ascent of man continues, people bettering themselves, economies growing. Uh, same thing here with the uh, pandemic lockdowns worldwide. I mean, you even came off 100 million barrels a day and uh, only dropped 15% in demand for locking down the whole world. That should tell you something about 
how uh, inculcated oil is into society, not just as a transportation fuel, but as a feedstock for many, 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 many products. So anyways, I think this is illustrative. And so you have this through all the ups and downs, and these are just like seasonal. Uh, this is why you have the sawtooth, you know, I have seasonal demand, but you see it's unrelenting growth. I mean, even when you had recessions uh, back here, like at the uh, recession because of the tech wreck back in, um, you know, or different uh, recessions, in the end, like I said, there's only been, I think, four or five years out of the last 60 where you've had actual declines in demand, like here at the great financial crisis or like right here. So these were two out of the four or five events. And so what I wanted to bring up was, you know, getting back on trend. And so if this trend stays the same, I mean, we should be at, you know, 102, 103 million barrels of demand in a world that um, can probably supply 99 or 100 million barrels, depending on, you know, who you want to talk to. And so this is why it's important to understand what's happening in China. You know, China was locked down for three years. Of course, oil demand didn't just disappear, okay? But it was uh, stifled, sp specifically, in, especially in aviation. There was not a lot of flights. Uh, I've shared the uh, data set that you can go to and get daily updates on China flights or flights or in any country around the world. So that's one thing. And then just China opening up, uh, I think it's, you know, safe to uh, assume that Chinese consumers are probably going to react a lot like other consumers around the world when lockdowns ended in like other countries like the US or Europe or something like this, where people were even locked down even longer, twice as long. Uh, you have pent up demand. Um, I think what we're going to see is what we're seeing is this wave of Omicron go through the society. Uh, people will get sick. You know, you're seeing the news stories. If you want to do a search on, you know, COVID China, you're going to see horror stories about everything. People piled up at crematoria and stuff like that and all these people dying. Uh, we don't we're not we're never going to know the full story. What we do know is that when the People's Republic of China ruling class decides to do something, they do it. OK, and uh, so they rip the Band-Aid off. I thought it would be a more phased uh, reopening over like 2023. That was kind of my original forecast. They just decided to rip the Band-Aid off. So I think you're going to see demand not really do anything right now because um, a lot of people are just at home sick, calling in sick as this uh, virus rips through. And then people will, again, you know, you'll develop a herd immunity, if you will. And then as people gain more confidence, you know, there's always a certain segment of the population that's going to be scared no matter what, just like we have in other countries. But there's going to be another part of the population. I mean, they've interviewed people that are raring to go, right? You've seen some of the uh, anecdotal evidence about uh, travel websites, the inquiries, reservations for planes, everything's up like hundreds of percent. So um, how that translates into actual spending of money and actual, you know, buying of tickets and all this stuff, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I suspect that we're going to see this get back on trend as Chinese demand comes in. 
comes back to more of a normal uh, demand. And that's, like I said before, it could be anywhere from two to three million barrels a day. And that would put us at, uh, you know, 102, 103, maybe, you know, depending on some of the other things that are happening in the world, 104 million barrels a day in a world that maybe can't supply that. Okay. We don't know. We, we, you know, depending on where you're at or what analysts or how you're analyzing this, you know, if you assume that the world can produce a hundred million barrels a day, uh, then that's a problem, right? You're going to be short. So this will be a developing situation. We'll have to watch it. I think this is going to be one of the most important themes of next year. I'm getting a little concerned that everybody kind of, there's a consensus growing around this, but maybe I'm in my own bubble here. Or maybe I have my own confirmation bias because of all the people that I interact with are, are saying the same thing. But I think that, you know, a lot of people are saying that this is going to be offset to a certain extent based on how, uh, how the, you know, recession in the U.S. continues to develop. It's obvious we have a slowdown in, in certain sectors of the economy. It goes without saying housing is a mess. And that's one of the largest sectors in the U.S. economy. But, uh, you know, as I've said before, we've had, unless we have something akin to the great financial crisis or a depression or something, um, I don't really see oil demand coming off too much. So, uh, in the developed world. And then not just China, you have the rest of the world. You know, some of the things I'm doing is uh, I'm doing some analysis. And when I go and look at uh, some of the data sources, it's like our world or something like I have these data sets, I'm going to start parsing them. But uh, just per capita uh, energy demand in places, even in China, which isn't even fully developed yet, it's still, you know, substantially less than the average in the US or in Japan or South Korea. And you talk about India or some of these other countries, it's even, you know, way lower than China. So we, this, I think, trend will be relentless uh, for some period of time. Of course, you know about our long-term, medium and long-term view that the insufficient investment that has uh, not happened in new oil and gas reserves, uh, that was our original theme to really push this uh, thesis of, of investing in oil field services and, you know, uh, certain exploration and production plays. So uh, we'll have to see how this goes. You know, I think that uh, as this demand comes back, uh, we'll have to balance that against, you know, some of the things that people are saying, well, um, on the bear side, well, China has really pumped up their products, storage, and crude storage topped off all their tanks. And so they really won't have the demand that you're anticipating, John, but it's like, okay, well, typically, you know, are those strategic reserves, you know, we don't really know all the data, okay? We just don't know. What we do know is, is we're trying to look at this as more of a 20 or 30,000 foot level, okay? Uh, and that's why, you know, we have these competing narratives around recession, you know, pushing demand down in one part of the world while this returns to trend. My bottom line is I don't want to discount 40 years of history here where we with, you know, unless you have some major worldwide financial dislocation, uh, oil demand goes up every year. It's just how it is. That's and if you're betting against that, you're being four out of 60 years uh, where oil demand went down. So I think that uh, maybe it was a good to anticipate these things. We had the run up to 130 with the war. That was probably overpriced 
Uh, now we've had a 50% cut basically, or almost a 50% cut, 40% cut. That's had a big pullback. And now we have uh, the major commodity importer in the world is now just said we're going to open up. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. But uh, again, uh, I think that this will be the major, one of the major themes. I'm not saying we're going to go back to all-time highs right now uh, with the rest of the world. Uh, in, but, you know, I look at places like India, where I just reported a couple weeks ago, I mean, oil demand was up like 10% year over year. So uh, these other places are still growing. And it, in order to grow an economy, it requires more and more energy inputs. So that, of course, is offset with what's you know going on in Europe with the economic dislocations. And now, like I said, in the U.S. and other parts of the world that seem to be slowing down. So we'll have to see. We'll have to balance it. We'll just have to keep an eye on it. But, uh, um, you know, with SPR releases ending and this demand coming back, plus what's happening in Russia, which is the best guess, like I said, you could be short four to five million barrels uh, a day at some point in 2023. Now, it's not going to just demand from China. It's not just going to you know flip a switch. It's going to ramp up over time. Like I said, as this virus makes its way through the population, people are going to be sick. They're not going to be moving. People are going to have to get, you know, it takes, you know, it's just like spring or something. You know, you come out of the winter. It's not just snap your fingers and one day all the flowers have sprouted. It's a couple few period of weeks or months, you know, I think by, you know, we'll really know where we're really at by, you know, somewhere in Q2 of next year, by end of Q2 next year, we'll really know if our thesis is right. And again, you know, we have to look at price. I mean, um, oil price is kind of, I'm not saying it's bottomed, but, you know, it's not really going lower at this point. So we'll have to watch price and see what that tells us also. So I thought this was interesting. Um, you know, this is why I get on Twitter. I like to see these various correlations that people come up with. But uh, this was by the Crude Chronicles uh, guy, a person I follow on Twitter. But I thought this was interesting. It shows, you know, the oil price in orange. This is your year-to-year -year change in the price uh, versus uh, global liquidity indicators. I don't know exactly all of the inputs he's using for these global indicators but um would be interesting to know but you know this is why you can't can't put 100 percent stock in one chart that you see but i find it interesting as i've said before this kind of relates to the argument i've made about that how you know markets and especially like a commodity market a lot of this is going to be liquidity driven right so uh as i've said about stock market or a lot of these risk markets in the short and medium term, they're driven by sediment and liquidity. And so what you see here is these liquidity indicators where you have, you know, uh, liquidity increasing by, this is percentage rise year over year. Same here. You know, as liquidity increases, the oil price increase. That makes sense, right? If you're pushing more money out, there's more money flowing around, then, uh, you know, it's going to be, typical that you would expect risk assets to perform. And so what I find interesting is look at where we're at on the global liquidity makers. This is what we've been talking about for like over a year now or about a year. Why, you know, people ask me like, uh, nothing's happened in the uranium stocks for like eight months. Uh, what's going on with the oil price? 
that's liquidity has dried up. There's no liquidity in the markets. This chart goes back to 1997. You can see the correlation. But what I think is happening now, and I'll show in subsequent charts, um, we're at the end of this tightening cycle, I think. We're getting near the end. We're closer to the end than we are at the beginning. Let me put it that way. And I'm going to show a chart about like China is, you know, going through now a reliquification cycle. They're leading on that. And I think that what you'll see, uh, there was a good article on Zero Hedge uh, maybe a week or so ago showing that uh, a study that was done by someone uh, at one of the investment banks that when inflation peaks, when, you know, from that peak, when does Fed policy usually reverse? And so I think that, you know, the consensus is we're going into a recession. And I always tell people, well, if we're going into a recession, you know what the central banks are going to do. Okay. And uh, so we have a lot of these people that I think are smarter than they, they try to be too smart about things. And they're like, well, you know, uh, Chairman, pa you know, I don't believe anything that the central bank says. I don't really think that they really know what they're doing all the time. Um, remember this time last year, the central bank was saying, you know, interest rates were at literally zero and they were saying that inflation was transitory. And then they, you know, had this huge, right, the quick, the highest or the quickest, uh, raising of rates in the history of the fed okay and so um and now he's now chairman powell is the new paul volcker i don't believe it i remember 2018 when he panicked and reversed course okay uh that's what these people do they're in they're creators of inflation and so i mean if you're looking at this global liquidity indicator which is at like a third uh let's say 25 year low okay do you think it goes lower than this do you think liquidity in the world's going to continue to tighten or do you think that we're closer to the end of the tightening cycle and uh or uh or are we closer to the beginning or there's going to be a lot more okay um because i can tell you that you know if this reverses there's obviously a lag but you see what happens to oil prices okay so i think this is uh a interesting snapshot of what can happen of course i don't know the future maybe maybe chairman powell is the second coming of paul volcker and he's going to continue to raise rates until inflation gets back to two percent i don't think that he'll be able to do that because of the political pushback and i think that there are now secular fundamental reasons why inflation will not go back to two percent okay i think what a lot of people forget and i've mentioned this before is that it wasn't just paul volcker raising rates to 20% in 1980 or whatever it was, okay? You had a new administration that did a tremendous amount of, um, the Reagan administration, tremendous amount of, what do you call it, uh, deregulation, okay, which loosened things up, caused more efficiency. You were on right at the cusp of the PC revolution, okay? The efficiency gains there. So there was a lot of other things that went into it. I mean, I'm not an economics grad student. I guess somebody could study this, but uh, we have the kind of the reverse here now. We have governments that are trying to stifle supply of raw materials, specifically oil and gas exploration, mining expo uh, exploration, um, just during the time when we've had a decade of underinvestment. So you have that tightening of supply. You don't have that uh, government uh, support that 
So that creates less efficiency and higher costs. So a lot of things go into it, but I think this is interesting. Like I said before, I mean, this kind of shows you, I think, uh, the rapid uh, tightening, okay, as liquidity shrunk. But I think that, uh, you know, are you, what do you anticipate over the next year or 18 months or two years? Further drops or uh, an increase? Uh, what they typically do is, you know, when they get down here, I mean, you look at, uh, uh, you saw what happened during the COVID uh, lockdowns. You saw the global liquidity, you know, it's not all time high. This is the great financial crisis of 2008. So they raised liquidity. You see how the uh, oil prices track. Okay. So I think it's interesting. I'm not saying you just rely on this and, 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 based on this, but I think this is an interesting, uh, but again, I'd like to know more about where, what indicators are using to get this global liquidity indicator. But uh, I think intuitively it should make sense to you. And you have to ask yourself the question, are there, is the world's central banks going to continue tightening or are we closer to the end? And then we're going to have a reliquification cycle. As I said before, China uh, so People's Bank of China go burr. Printing presses are cranked up. Here's the um, three-month annual growth of their liquidity operations. You see that uh, coinciding with the ripping off of the Band-Aid, they've been raising, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're raising their um, interventions into the economy to create more liquidity. And China is uh, doing that, coinciding with a, uh, just like I said, just slip the switch reopening. So um, we'll have to see where that takes us. I think this is the beginning uh, salvo of central banks. I think that you will see, based on that uh, Zero Hedge article I saw and the research, typically it's 22 weeks after the peak in inflation when you get the last interest rate uh, increase. And that would put us at the last rate raising Late, the last, this is an average now, the last, uh, the argument was that the December uh, 50 basis points increase was the last one. And so the next uh, meeting will be in February. And I think you'll start, you'll see, start to see language around a softening around because the inflation uh, indicators will probably keep coming in. Like I said, it's not probably going to go back to 2%, but they're going to find some language or come up with some story about how, you know, 4% or 3.8% or 4.6% is the new normal and why it's good for everyone. Uh, as they prepare this economy, like I said, the housing market's pretty much dying, okay? Uh, that's probably 15% of the economy. And so, uh, uh, yes, you have some momentum of, um, of houses that were being built already, but, you know, difficult to see... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the data is there. So I think we're going to see more liquidity. We're going to see the reversal of tight money into easy money throughout the year around the world. And uh, I think that will be positive for uh, risk assets. And I think that that's non-consensus right now, but uh, we'll see. But like I said, these sentiment shifts can happen in a heartbeat. The liquidity is coming back, at least in China. Uh, I think, it, you know, a good speculation is even get long Chinese stocks. I mean, if you're inclined, I'm not doing that personally. I'll just play it through uh, the oil price. I think that that's enough risk for me. But I know a lot of people have been buying Chinese stocks in anticipation. So, uh, but uh, this is what we like to see. 
if you know that should be positive for our thesis and so i thought this was interesting uh people this is the m2 money supply you had the first decline in the m2 money supply in 60 years was last year so again i ask you you see the two outliers of what happened in 2020 and 2021 so you have the first decline there was another one in here that was like point eight uh yeah 1994 you had a point three uh percent um increase but this is the first actual decline in money supply in 60 years m2 so this kind of you know makes my point about the fed is basically a engine of inflation not hyperinflation but this you know you see see the results if you look from 1959 to 2022 the change in prices it should be obvious but uh do i anticipate 2023 being another down year i mean uh, what are the odds if you look back through history so moving on i thought this was interesting you know uh we talk about uh the energy transition I, you know, I've been bagging on the energy vende and these poor decisions that a lot of politicians are making and policymakers. But again, here's another example of heads we win, tails we win more. You know, we re we say that we want to do this energy transmission, and then people have went people a lot smarter than John have went out and done the calculations of what's required. You know the copper that's required, the nickel that's required, the cobalt, all these minerals that are required for this energy transition. And we're going to have a difficult time supplying them, okay? Just because, again, because of the underinvestment, because of the ongoing depletion of existing mines, you know, you're living off the fat of previous investments that were made 10 or 15 years earlier. And so now we have a country, Indonesia, which is talking about creating a OPEC style cartel for battery metals, uh, which makes perfect sense to me because if I was, you know, people do what's in their own best interest, not what's in your best interest. Okay. And so they, I think Indonesia, I don't think they're a member of uh, OPEC anymore. They used to be an exporting country of oil, but I think they don't export oil anymore because of some of the, I, I'm not sure, but anyways, this is just another, um, bullish type situation if you're a copper uh somebody that believes copper and these battery metals is, are going to be moving higher over time which i which i think that's the case and so here's what uh some snippets from the article it said the world's largest nickel producer exploring governance structure similar to that used by the oil group indonesia is studying the establishment of an opec-like cartel for nickel and other key battery metals highlighting the geopolitical confidence of nations that are rich in resources needed to make electric cars uh, here's a quote. Uh, I do see the merit of creating OPEC to manage the governance of oil trade to ensure predictability for potential investors and consumers. Indonesia is studying the possibility to form a similar governance structure with regard to the minerals we have, including nickel, cobalt, and man manganese. So uh, I don't think the OPEC cartel was created to create uh predictability for investors and consumers it was created to, to uh, maximize the return as best it could 
for the oil producing countries. And I think that the same thing will happen here. And this is just another outgrowth, I think, of, you know, 25 years ago, I mean, nobody, this wouldn't have even been discussed because these countries were under the thumb of the Western powers and their job was to just, you know, export raw materials to the West so that we could manufacture them into value added products in our factories. And so you've seen other moves with Indonesia in the past where they have said that you couldn't, you had to build refineries, nickel refinery uh, in Indonesia because they wanted to capture some of the value add uh, up the value chain. So they just didn't want to re be a price taker and, you know, export just raw ore. They wanted to refine the nickel uh, in Indonesia and capture more of that value chain. So um, again, this is just people acting in their own self-interest, but this isn't going to be positive if you're trying to have this energy transition where you already have an acknowledged um, shortage of these metals that you need for this uh, energy transition that everybody, all policymakers are on board with. Um, the goal doesn't match reality. And so you have this gap that, and then you see things like this, it's going to make it more, do you think this is make it metals more expensive or less expensive? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And so they're just talking about it right now, but if this is the trend, which I believe it will be, then I think that the metals become more expensive and harder to obtain. And so here is a chart, another one with copper supply and demand from Goldman Sachs. And so you see, uh, this is the uh, um, supply growth that's expected over till 2030. You can see over the next couple of years, uh, we have some mines coming online, so they're going to add 1.1 million um, metric uh, million tons of copper next year. But this doesn't match what policymakers want. You have new what it says right here. Most of this incremental supply is likely to come online in the next two years, after which supply growth decelerates until 27, 28. Top 50 projects, copper production growth, 22 to 30. Does this match what policymakers want to happen? They want more electrification. In order to have electrification, you need more copper, but yet you have copper. new copper supply is trending down, not up. Okay, this is a problem. And so you see over here, exhibit four, demand grows in the second half of the decade on the back of decarbonization and green trends as per our global commodities team. Um, so you have these different demand ve uh, vectors, electric vehicles, solar, wind, charging infrastructure. This is total green demand, okay? You need 6 million um, new pounds. I mean, well, this is, I don't show the cumulative. Doesn't, this doesn't, the demand side, the supply side doesn't match the demand side. That's the argument we've been making. So you have demand going up, supply going down. I mean, this is why you have people like Gorin and Rosenzweig saying they don't see it out of, they don't see uh, the risk is to the upside on the price. And again, if you're in a global recession or you're in a recessionary environment, copper's right now at $3.80 a pound. What happens when demand comes back? Okay. And of course, now the billions, hundreds of billions, tens of billions devoted to the energy transition uh, the in the West, that's the new zeitgeist. 
where are, where is the copper coming from? So um, I like to just show these things. I know we talk about them a lot, but it reinforces this isn't changing. We're not seeing announcements of major copper discoveries or of companies going out and looking for more copper. Okay. Um, again, you know, if the price goes to five, six, seven, ten dollars a pound for copper, yes, they'll see increased exploration. But the, remember, again, you're running into more and more of these problems that you're seeing even in oil and all commodities. The easy stuff has been found. The stuff that's left is going to be more expensive to find, harder to find, more difficult to extract, and more expensive to extract. The head grades or the amount of copper that you are getting in each ton of, of uh, ore that you're, or rock that you're mining is going down over time, okay? This is a problem. And, you know, because, you know, if you're out picking fruit, you're going to pick the before you go to the garage and get your ladder and exert a lot of effort to climb up to the top of the apple tree, you're going to get all the apples that you can reach from the ground, which is easy. I mean, this is not hard to understand. And if so, you're going to put all this extra demand and transition away from fossil fuels into electrification of everything. It all rests on copper. Okay. And you just don't have the, you know, this is just showing the demand for uh, this is green demand. This isn't, you know, further industrialization and modernization of, of the developing world. You know, as India, people buy more air conditioners, uh, simple things like that, as Africa electrifies for the first time in many places where people, you know, there's billions, a couple billion people haven't even flipped a light switch yet. So getting that infrastructure built out, all those transformers, all of that uh, switching stations, that all requires, you know, new power plants, okay? Uh, as you get more industry, all those electric motors all have copper windings. So uh, not just the green demand putting strain on the, on the supply, but just normal economic growth that's going to happen or industrialization and urbanization of a lot of developing countries. Simply just, you know, as Robert Friedland said, you're going to have to mine enough copper in the next 10 years. Uh, the amount of copper you mine in the next 10 or so years is going to be equal to what was mined up until this point in history. That's doesn't exist. And so that's the opportunity, right? So uh, this is why we bring these types of charts to your attention. Does that mean that the price starts going up tomorrow? No, I don't know. But I think over time, you know, are you going to, you know, if you buy when these things are out of favor, I think that when the up cycles come, they're going to be more pronounced to the upside and last longer. That's my view. So this was from, uh, this kind of reinforces what I showed last week when I showed the chart of uh, the uh, Sprott uh, Uranium Mining ETF. Um, this is Uranium Insider, Justin Hune. This is a tweet. He just uh, listed these 12-month price changes for uh, conversion, UF6, spots, SWU, term SWU. I mean, and then he showed the long-term 308 price and the spot price. I mean, this is another thing where, uh, this is reality, right? And because the stocks have not responded, you know, I've said this before. If I didn't say it last week, I'll say it again. I mean, liquidity really drives these speculative markets. And uranium is a very thinly traded market. There's not a lot of liquidity, um, even in the stocks. There's a lot of retail in the stocks, retail investors that get bored. If, there's not, if it's not going up, there's a lot of chasing of the shiny object. 
in the market cap, you just don't have the institutional money has not really come in yet. It will at some point, but this is positive. Everything's going in the right direction. There's nothing to be bearish about. And so if you have the opportunity and you have the patience, um, you know, this is an opportunity to buy. Again, you have to bifurcate between speculations and junior mining and the more established companies that are kind of like real investments. Uh, I'm not going to have that conversation again. I've, I've beat that horse to, I've beat that horse to a pulp. But uh, again, things are not negative in the industry. They're positive. Um, he, uh, Justin Hewn, had a very, very good interview. Eric Townsend of Macro Voices interviewed him. Um, it was up last week. I will put a link to that interview. If you want to understand further about where the market is right now and where it's going, uh, you know, he kind of really does a really good uh, discussion, Justin does, with Eric to get him up to speed uh, because he, Eric Townsend had been criticized for, you know, he guess he, he wanted to get involved with it. Uh, he ended up becoming a getting involved in uranium. He wanted to. Uh, he got became a subscriber to Justin's newsletter, Uranium Insider, and I guess he was really impressed with the work. And and then his juices were flowing once he realized the real fundamentals. So, I just wanted to put this tweet up here. I'll put a link to the interview. You can listen at your leisure if you don't know anything about uranium, or if you want to learn more about you know deep dive into the sector and the. Uh, you know, opportunities. I think it's a good primer. It will get you up to speed. And if you are a long-term uranium bull, like I am, uh, I mean, I listen to it on my walk and, uh, you know, pretty much knew everything that he was saying. There's not much more to say. I mean, demand's rising and supply isn't. So uh, that's the opportunity. Uh, again, there's plenty of, you know, uranium in the ground. It's just, you know, you can't snap your fingers and get it out. And so uh, I think the main thing to understand that I took away from the interview, I knew all along is the utilities now are now going to be entering a multi-year contracting cycle for uranium, which they haven't had to do in the last 10 or since Fukushima, because there was an oversupply of uranium on the spot market and they were living off that. It was just real easy to get and cheap. Um, that's kind of dried up, pretty much dried up. And so now they have to go back to their normal way of doing business, which is signing multi-year contracts with producers for this uranium and then you know plus it's it's even more bullish when you get into the story that he i'm not going to get into because it's like an hour and a half interview but the moving from underfeeding to overfeeding how that's going to swing demand for yellow cake and it's again the bullish thesis has not went away and I, I think he does a better job of explaining it than i than i could i'm more of a generalist but I'll put a link to the uh, interview in the show notes. This is an article on Real Clear Energy, uh, 2022, the year ESG fell to earth. I think that's one risk to the, it's not really a risk because I think the, like for copper, um, I think some people are going to push forward with the ESG, but there's a lot of holes. It took a lot of hits under the waterline this, this year because, you know, especially with what you see happening in Europe and Germany specifically, where you know the reliance on um russian natural gas became exposed when it got cut off and the fact that when that got cut off and it really exposed the uh the inadequacies of the energy vende and the reliance on renewables in germany they just are not performing 
And so that's why you're seeing coal come back. Uh, you saw the extension of the three remaining reactors. Um, it's really a mess. And I think that's one reason. Another reason is, is that, you know, you have an overall, we're in an overall energy crisis and it's just not making sense. So you're seeing the fact that these financiers, the masters of the universe can't make any money doing it. So they're crossing away. They don't care about the environment. They're not trying to destroy the environment. All they care about is money and making profits. Okay. And so you can't, it's difficult to make money with renewables. I'm not going to get into why, uh, but it is, and they're not making the return. So now they're starting to crawfish away from it. Um, and that's what they do. They follow the trends and uh, they can't make money. Then they're just going to get out of it. So a couple uh, snippets from the article, the year 2022 brings an end to an end to an era of illusions, a year that saw the end of the post cold war era and the return of geopolitics, the first energy crisis of the enforced energy transition to net zero and the year that brought environmental, social, and governance investing down to earth with a thump. For the year to date, BlackRock's ESG screened S&P ETF lost 22% of its value. Well, it's an overall bear market also. And the S&P energy sector index rose 54%. Uh, then I skipped around. So the three-year length it was talking about some other things you need to read dark. By restricting investment in production of oil and gas by Western producers, ESG increases the market power of non-Western producers thereby enabling Putin's weaponization of energy supplies. Net zero, the holy grail of ESG, has turned out to be Russia's most potent ally. I don't know why people are so surprised about, you know, this caricature that, like, Putin is pushing all the buttons and moving the levers. He wrote his master thesis on using Russia's uh, mineral resources, its endowment of resources, to allow it a path to become a geopolitical uh, player to reemerge as a geopolitical player. So why are people like shocked by this? Okay. And the fact that like, there's no other Russian government or bureaucracy or interests except for Mr. Putin, it makes it too simplistic, which I don't like. You can't just say Mr. Biden or Trump or Mr. Putin, like they are pushing all the buttons and moving all the levers. And they're the only ones they're sitting there such, such brainiacs that they come up with all these they know what they're doing, everything. There's all kinds of interests involved in every country that are competing, okay, in different factions. Uh, so anyways, that's one little aggravation. But anyways, what I'm getting at is uh, the holes have now appeared because, again, people don't want to be made poor for energy, okay, and not when they think or know that there are cheaper energy sources and they're being forced into more expensive uh, sources, this is a problem. And so I think that is, you know, now becoming uh, more and more realized. And when you see the like Vanguard and some of these other people backing away, uh, you know, this is this be giving you an indication. I'm not ready to drive a stake through ESG. There's a lot of government momentum in the West. Policymakers are intent on doing this. I think what they this was a good um uh, statement up here in the first uh, blurb, enforced energy transition in net zero. That's exactly right. These governments do have the ability, they have the initiative, and they have the means at this point, at least for now, to enforce the energy transition. So it's not going to lose full momentum until these people are thrown out of office. And I don't know when that's going to happen. It's beyond my ability to predict. But 
if people, if these failures continue and high prices continue and people's standard of living continues to go down, uh, I think you know what's going to happen. There's a reaction. There's going to be a reaction to these policies, and it's not going to be positive and supportive of them. So we'll have to see. Again, uh, this kind of plays into heads you win, tails you win more. And so, uh, but I thought this was an interesting article, and I, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So I thought this this is the last slide for this week. Uh, it says, Egypt has rat ratified its participation in the BRICS New Development Bank. So, you know, if you read uh, the, was I forget the name of the book, Admissions of an Economic Hitman or something like that. You know, it kind of tells the story of this guy that went around and how basically, I'm just giving you a quick synopsis. The guy was like a toady for the World Bank and IMF and all these people and kind of in the banking interests in the West and how they go around and exploit developing and emerging markets by getting them to take on all this debt. And then they, you know, when they can't pay, then they come in like the IMF and they start doing this asset stripping or privatizations of state-owned industries, uh, which are normally bought by, you know, Western interests. You know, so this is part of the, what the global South and global East and this multipolar world wants to get away from doesn't want to be under the thumb of these Western institutions, i.e. the IMF, i.e. the World Bank. And so the Global East uh, and South is creating its own uh, development bank. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to be as exploitive. It very well could be. I'm not going to say it's going to be better for these countries. What I'm trying to show you here, and what I talked about at the start of the video, which is going to be a theme going forward over the next couple few years, which you need to pay attention to, is that we are going to this multipolar world. Again, not saying that it's going to be better. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is it's going to happen, okay? And you can't ignore that it's going to happen, okay? If you do that, then you do that to your own detriment, okay? There's going to be ramifications of this. There's going to be uh, investment opportunities and things that are going to be uh, negative for investments. And, uh, you know, we're going to see what exactly happens uh, uh, going forward. Uh, we're going to see, you know, like Saudi Arabia, I've talked about this before, you know, uh, moving to trade this big deal with China and they will trade making basically this petro yawn, okay? Where you see Russia and India uh, doing oil trades and accepting the Indian currency. So they're moving away from the dollar. This is a slow transition away from the dollar and away from the global hegemon, which is the Atlantic-based powers, Europe and the United States, uh, which have dominated. You know, you have to watch that. Uh, for a little example of how that works, watch the Georgia Maloney, the PM of Italy, when she talks about the uh, how France exploits its former colonies in Africa by issuing a certain currency and how that uh, uh, exploitation goes on. Um, it's like a two-minute video. It, was, it went viral like a couple months ago. But that gives you an example of what goes on. And I've seen it like in these like third world countries I've worked in when I've, you know, like in, you know, Guatemala and Central America, these other places. And you just see it, you know, through the, through the news. You know, we get these countries hooked and then, you know, well, you can't pay your debt. You have to pay your debt to the detriment of your own population. You can't afford it. So we have a plan for you. This is this IMF plan where you sell off these assets or sell off the crown jewels of the economy to these Western interests. 
And that's basically how it works. So I'm not saying this is going to be better, but what I'm saying is, is this is another thing to pay attention to as the world, uh, you know, moves into this multipolar situation. Uh, so anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, happy new year, stay safe out there and we'll talk to you next week.